You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 129, Prisoners of War. Following the New York campaign, the British found themselves with thousands of American prisoners of war. The first Geneva Convention guaranteeing certain rights for prisoners of war was still a century in the future. In the 18th century, European armies typically took good care of enemy officers. Sometimes enemy soldiers fared well, but sometimes not. It was up to the captor how they wanted to treat their prisoners. It was not unheard of simply to execute enemy prisoners under their care. In the case of the Revolution, the British often did not consider captives even to be enemy prisoners. They were British rebels. Rebels, or traitors, deserved execution, and not even quick executions. Traditionally, the government used drawing and quartering, or other brutal deaths, to execute traitors. Now, General Howe, of course, was not going to start drawing and quartering people. But their lives and their well-being were also not a terribly high concern for the British leadership. Now, as I said, the British had thousands of American prisoners, mostly from the capture of Fort Washington, but also from other battles fought in and around New York as the British took control of the area. The Navy had also captured many more American privateers, most of whom also ended up in New York City. The men were dumped into prison ships in New York Harbor or in warehouses along the docks where they lived sometimes for years in filth and cramped conditions, causing disease to kill many of them. Some estimates put death rates as high as 70%. The man responsible for the care of these prisoners was Joshua Loring. General Howe, of course, had taken his wife Elizabeth Loring as a mistress, and part of the tacit agreement between the two men seemed to be that Joshua Loring would ignore the affair and Howe would ignore what Loring was doing to the prisoners. Loring received a good deal of money to feed the prisoners, but pocketed most of it. The prisoners often received spoiled food, which only made them sick. In some cases, they received no food at all, causing them to die from starvation. Records are far from complete, but over the course of the war, even the most conservative estimates show that well over 10,000 prisoners died in captivity in New York alone, more than all the battlefield deaths combined, and probably double the number of battlefield deaths. The British dumped most of the dead unceremoniously into New York Harbor, where their bones washed ashore for decades to come. Others were buried in mass graves, often tossed in alongside the garbage. Now, most Patriot officers were treated at least a little better than the enlisted men. 
armies, as I said, tended to treat officers better because they were gentlemen. Captors could rely on their word that they would not try to escape and could grant them relative freedom of movement and better conditions. The British, however, did not hold in regard many American officers who they did not consider gentlemen. These men were often farmers, shopkeepers, or other workers from the same background as the enlisted men. Initially, many captured American officers received the same treatment as their soldiers and were held in the same prisons. As the British settled into New York, they did begin separating the officers into better quarters. Even so, American officers were often crowded into rooms well beyond their capacity. The British crammed many captured officers into small private homes around the city, which, as you may recall, was already suffering a shortage as a result of the fire of New York and the massive influx of British soldiers. Captain Jabez Finch, captured at the Battle of Long Island, reported being kept in a house with two small downstairs rooms and one upstairs room that combined housed over two dozen officers. Worse than the crowded living conditions were food rations. The British Army called for prisoners to receive two-thirds of a standard soldier ration. Some modern calculations have determined that this would give the average prisoner less than 1,700 calories per day, which is not enough to sustain body weight for most men. That, of course, is if they got what they were supposed to get. The result of food shortages and corrupt officials resulted in prisoners receiving even less food most of the time. Prisoners began to weaken and became more prone to disease. After a short time, many began to die. Now, officers could sometimes get permission to leave the homes where they were confined and purchase extra food at the market in town, but that of course necessitated having money to do so. Many had to rely on the sympathetic charity of local New Yorkers, most of whom were loyalists by this time and who barely had enough food to feed themselves. By fall of 1776, General Howe began to permit captured officers to walk around during daylight hours as a matter of course. When they did this, however, most reported abuse by civilian Tories as well as British and Hessian soldiers. Enemy officers regularly suffered beatings and robberies if seen on the streets. By early 1777, some officers were permitted to take parole on Long Island that is, if they could afford to pay room and board. By that time, many had already died from the harsh conditions in the city, and many more remained terribly ill for months. American General Samuel Parsons tried to get approval in the spring of 1777 to launch an invasion of Long Island, in part to liberate the American prisoners living there. General Washington, however, expressed reservations fearing that it would mean future prisoners would not be granted the liberty to stay on Long Island and that they would be put back into the more cramped quarters in New York City. So he ended up putting the plan on hold. Later that summer, after much of the British force left for Philadelphia, Parsons once again sought approval for an attack on Long Island, not only to liberate prisoners, but also to capture Tories and destroy supplies needed to feed the British in New York. I will cover the details of this raid in a future episode, 
but for now I'll just say that the result was as Washington feared. The British moved captured officers living on Long Island back to a prison ship in New York Harbor. After a few weeks, however, they once again considered Long Island secure and returned the prisoners to the farms and villages where they had been living. If things were bad for the officers, they were so much worse for the enlisted men. In addition to the prison ships, the British crammed hundreds, sometimes more than a thousand prisoners, into buildings along the wharf. One of the most notorious was the Sugar House Prison. There were actually at least three sugar houses in New York that the British converted into prisons. These were large stone buildings, once used to make rum from imported sugar. Many other prisoners were housed in various churches around town. All churches except Anglican churches became prisons for the captured rebels. Prisoners had already been beaten, stripped of clothes, blankets, and anything else of value before they even reached the prison. Most had to sleep on the floor, avoiding puddles of feces and urine left by fellow prisoners. What little food they received usually was rotten or infested with vermin. Some soldiers reported trying to boil out the vermin, if possible, before choking down the food. Unfortunately, prisons quickly formed into gangs where the strong preyed on the weak for scraps of food and anything else of value. On top of that, the guards showed little mercy or even concern for the suffering of the prisoners. As I said, they did not recognize those in prisons as prisoners of war. To the guards, these were rebels and traitors, worse than common criminals. The commonly held view was that these men should simply be hanged and stop wasting resources. There are stories of guards kicking bowls of soup that civilians had left for the prisoners. One prisoner asked for a guard where he might get some paper and writing materials to get word to his family. In response, the guard ran him through with his sword, killing him. Guards gratuitously beat prisoners, sometimes to death. Abuse, cold, hunger, and disease quickly took their toll. Prisoners died in large numbers. Many prisons reported more than a dozen deaths each morning. Corpses were left in the street to be hauled away for burial in mass graves or simply tossed into the harbor with the garbage. An estimated two-thirds of the prisoners captured at Fort Washington met their end this way. Many more thousands would die in the coming years as conditions did not improve much. Many got moved to prison ships in the harbor. These were ships that had transported troops to New York but were no longer seaworthy However, they could still hold men in their cold, dark, windowless hulls. Some prisoners survived in these conditions for years. At this same time, Parliament in London had approved the use of decommissioned ships to hold convicted criminals in London. Many Whigs there complained about the inhuman conditions of being held aboard ships with no light or fresh air. Despite these criticisms, the use of prison ships in both London and New York became common and remained in place for years. Prisoners did have one option to get out of these nightmarish conditions. They could swear allegiance to the king and join the Royal Navy. A very few took advantage of this option. The notion of betraying their cause was one reason, but the fact that the life of a British sailor was only slightly better than that of a prisoner may have had an impact on their decision as well. Given the horrific conditions of prison, though, 
many officers were surprised at how few soldiers agreed to switch sides. They were not used to enlisted men who fought for principle. The two sides did not engage in large-scale prisoner exchanges until after Burgoyne's army was captured in late 1777. So, for the time being, most prisoners were stuck without hope of release. Over the winter, General Washington began to receive reports of the horrific treatment that the British inflicted on captured prisoners being held in New York. For a time, Washington could not respond. Remember that in December 1776, he was busy trying to keep his retreating army together as its dwindling numbers fled toward Philadelphia. Then after that, he had several weeks in active combat fighting with the First and Second Battles of Trenton and the Battle of Princeton. By mid-January 1777, General Washington found the time to write a scathing letter to General Howe complaining of the treatment including affidavits from former prisoners. Washington indicated that continued cruel treatment might result in acts of retaliation on Loyalist civilians or British and Hessian prisoners under American control. Having taken nearly 1,000 mostly Hessian prisoners over the previous few weeks, General Washington now had some bargaining chips. Even so, Washington did not propose a prisoner exchange. When Howe proposed one in May, Washington declined. He knew that captured British soldiers were much more difficult to replace than captured Americans. He also knew that exchanges would simply incentivize the British to capture more patriot militia and civilians for use in trade. Most of the captured Hessians, after spending some time in Philadelphia, ended up being shipped further west, where they stayed with German-speaking communities in western Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia. This was far enough inland that they had little hope of escaping back to the front lines. Many of them found jobs and helped to counter the labor shortage. Many communities had sent their men off to war and needed help with farming and manufacturing. In some cases, prisoners spent their nights in custody and then went out during the day to work at jobs. In other cases, a prisoner might live with a family on a farm responsible for his custody and would work and live on that farm. Over the course of the war, as many as 3,000 Hessians and other German-speaking soldiers declined to return home when offered the chance. They found life in America was better than the places they had left and opted to become Americans. So, despite the horrible treatment of prisoners in British care, Prisoners in American care fared pretty well. Now, in response to General Washington's letters, General Howe simply denied any ill treatment. He claimed that the number of deaths were exaggerated, that foul conditions were the result of the prisoners' own indolence in keeping their cells clean, and that no prisoner had complained to him or his officers about mistreatment. In January 1777, Congress appointed a committee to investigate prisoner abuse by the British. Samuel Chase of Maryland chaired the committee. John Witherspoon, a New Jersey delegate, did most of the work of taking testimony from former prisoners and preparing the final report, which Congress published in May. Newspapers published portions of the report all over the continent, with the expected result of increased animosity towards Britain's barbaric treatment of prisoners. 
Congress also appointed a commissary general. They could not find an officer interested in the job. After all, this was a bureaucratic position that offered little opportunity for heroics and advancement. Washington finally convinced a civilian, Elias Bodenot, to take the job, although he didn't really want the job either. Bodenot, a prosperous New Jersey lawyer, may have been recommended by one of Washington's junior aides, Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton had boarded with Bodenot before the war when he was a college student. Bodenot would be responsible for taking care of prisoners captured by the Continentals as well as getting food, clothing, money, and other necessities to American prisoners in British hands. Bodenot was already acquainted with John Pintard, a New York merchant who agreed to serve as a resident agent to the prisoners in New York. Both Bodenot and Pintard were married to sisters of Richard Stockton, a New Jersey delegate to the Continental Congress. Stockton, of course, was a prisoner himself at this time, as I discussed back in episode 118. Pinchard had fled to New Jersey when the British invaded New York. General Howe would not allow him to return in any official capacity, since that would recognize the Continental Congress as a legitimate body. However, Howe did give him permission to return to New York City in late April. Pintard was able to work in an unofficial capacity to provide prisoners with supplies. The next problem, of course, was that the Continental Congress had no supplies to give to the prisoners. They gave Pintard some paper money that they had printed, but no one in New York would accept what they regarded as worthless paper. Most of the money he did raise went straight to Joshua Loring to pay off debts for the food that he had already provided to the prisoners. Bonanet ended up spending a great deal of his personal money as well as money borrowed from friends on his personal promise. This allowed him to buy and distribute some items, but not nearly enough to be adequate. I'll leave the discussion of other prisoner issues later in the war to future episodes, but suffice it to say, American prisoners in British custody never had an easy time of it. One prisoner who escaped such ill treatment was General Charles Lee. As I mentioned back in episode 118, the British capture of Lee was seen as the greatest British victory of the war up to that point. Lee's first month or so was pretty harsh, held in chains and closely monitored as the leadership determined whether or not to treat him as a deserter. After a few weeks of harsh treatment, General Howe changed his handling of this valuable prisoner. He moved Lee from North Jersey into New York City. There, he gave Lee comfortable quarters and a generous food allowance. Although he would not give Lee parole, he allowed him to have dinner guests with other British officers. As a former British officer, many officers treated him as a colleague when he arrived in mid-January 1777. In London, Lord Germain instructed that Lee be returned to London for trial as a deserter. Howe, though, refused to ship him across the Atlantic after determining that Lee had properly resigned his commission before joining the Continental Army. Howe's treatment of Lee was not just the general being nice. Howe, as I said, had initially planned to ship Lee back to London in compliance with instructions. He canceled the plans after receiving notice from Washington 
warning Howe that he was holding five Hessian officers and one British officer that he would treat the same way Lee was treated. If Lee went back to London for trial and execution, Washington would execute his prisoners. This was the same thing Washington had done to protect Colonel Ethan Allen, who was shipped back to London for trial and presumably execution as a traitor, but who was now on his way back to America to join the other prisoners in New York later that year. But Lee was a very valuable prisoner for the British, who kept him under constant guard. He lived in relative comfort, though, in a warm room with plenty of food. He dined every day with other British officers, discussing the war, politics, and other matters. The British even allowed the Americans to send over one of his dogs, as well as his personal servant. Both General Howe and Admiral Howe dined with Lee on multiple occasions. They were still looking for a peaceful settlement of the war and hoped to use Lee to find a way to make that happen. They allowed Lee to correspond with Congress and see if he could open up lines of discussion for negotiation. Congress, however, did not bite and refused to respond positively to any of Lee's overtures. Lee seemed happy to boast of his abilities and to criticize Washington's leadership to British officers. He even went so far as to draft a document recommending to General Howe a plan of attack against the Continental Army. That plan, which bears some similarity to Howe's actual plan of attack later that year, suggested Howe move his army by ship down to Maryland and cut off the southern states from the Continental Army. Now, it's unclear exactly what motivated Lee to provide the enemy with war plans. Some have argued that it was an attempt to trick Howe into making this stupid move, which eventually resulted in him being removed from command. I really don't think that's the case, though. I think this really had more to do with Lee's own ego. He thought of himself as a brilliant strategist who could develop a plan of victory for either side. His plan was simply proof of his brilliance. In any event, Lee's apparent cooperation with the enemy did not seem to land him in any trouble when he was exchanged more than a year later. He would rejoin the Continental Army as one of its top generals in 1778. Meanwhile, thousands of other officers and men would linger in deplorable conditions for many years. Many more soldiers and sailors would die in New York prisons than in all battlefields of the war combined. Next week, we head south again as Florida Loyalists attack the Georgia Patriot forces at Fort McIntosh. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. 
Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution podcast after show. This is my final episode for the year 2019. I've been publishing weekly now for two and a half years without missing a single week. I hope to continue that streak, although it can be difficult at times. I really appreciate all the encouragement and support that people have shown this podcast as it continues to grow. Everyone who has left five-star reviews on Apple or other places, who has supported the show on Patreon or made contributions via PayPal, or even just helped spread the word about this show, that all really keeps me going. Sorry to end the year on such a depressing topic about prisoners of war, but this really is, for me, one of the most important topics of the war, and certainly for the soldiers who lived it. Their chances of being killed on the battlefield paled in comparison to the really horrific deaths, dying slow and miserable deaths, as prisoners of war. The combination of neglect, greed, and downright hostility to anyone who would dare oppose the king led to this miserable treatment, which today would be considered a war crime. Sure, we can say that these were different times and there were different standards, but even at the time, people were horrified when they saw these conditions. For anyone who thinks General Howe was a decent man who respected his enemy, I would say just look at Sugar House Prison or the prison ship Jersey and think again. Something else that's always just bothered me is that Sugar House Prison was a horrific scene of suffering and death. I live in the Philadelphia area and am regularly bombarded with advertisings for Sugar House Casino. Now, I realize the casino is named after a different Sugar House, but for me, it's kind of like having a casino named Auschwitz or Andersonville. Not that one, a different one. The name itself is tainted for me, and it just seems disrespectful to the men who suffered and died in that hellhole. Many thousands of patriots died as prisoners of war many under truly horrific conditions. And even the bodies were simply unceremoniously dumped in garbage pits or into the harbor, an inglorious end to men who deserved better. Sadly, there are not even good records on the numbers of death, let alone the names of all the men. But we do know that the number of prisoner deaths probably were more than double that of patriot deaths that came on the combined battlefields of the war possibly even more than that. As depressing a topic as this is, I feel we owe it to these men to remember what they suffered for in the effort to found the United States. If you want to read more on this topic, I recommend the book Forgotten Patriots, The Untold Story of American Prisoners During the Revolutionary War by Edwin G. Burroughs. This is one of the most comprehensive books which I have found which is devoted to this topic. The book focuses specifically on American prisoners held in New York City over the course of the war. 
It was first published in 2008 and is about 250 pages, not counting notes and index. It's a well-researched book and written in a compelling style. The author, Burroughs, wrote another book about New York City called Gotham, which won a Pulitzer Prize. There are a couple of other decent books which deal with prisoners of war during the Revolution, but I think Forgotten Patriots is a good place to start. For my online recommendation this week, I did find a website that tracks prisoners who were held on the prison ship Jersey during the war. As the site itself concedes, it's based on very flawed and limited information called from British war records. But it is the best source we have. You can find the site at www.usmm.org slash revdead.html. The site itself is devoted to the history of the American merchant marines, and many of those held on Jersey were crew members from privateer ships captured by the British during the war. As always, there's a link for both the book and my online recommendation on my website, amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.